It's your Tuesday Daily Delivery. I am Michael Rand. Glad to have you guys all back again today. Man, buckle up for the uh, the forecast here. Not uh, not great. Give you a little weather update at the beginning. Cold, more cold, snow coming. Stay safe, stay inside, listen to Daily Delivery all week. That is the best you are going to be able to do. Today's show is a good one, as they all are. Andrew Kramer joins me here in a little while to talk Vikings, a little film review. Leading into that Indianapolis game, so much of the talk was about the defense, the defense's struggles, what adjustments they could make, and I think that was you know a fascinating game from so many levels, but Andrew helps me understand kind of just how much they changed, the Vikings did, what they had been doing on defense, and you know what about that worked, what about that might be able to be replicated down the stretch here against you know some of these other teams in the regular season and certainly in the playoffs. Also have some award-winning uh, Vikings poetry here in a little bit as well. The only way to properly express what we saw on uh, on Saturday was through the uh, the miracle of poetry. Um, also get to some uh, Gopher football recruiting stuff here in a little while at the end of the show. Some uh, some big uh, some big commitments for the Gophers with signing day coming up on Wednesday. First though, what did I miss? Let's talk Timberwolves at the jump here because um, well one because I can't stay away from them. I always have to talk about the Timberwolves. They they fascinate me eternally, um, but they're really interesting right now in that now they have a three-game winning streak compiled entirely without Carl Anthony Towns or Rudy Gobert in the lineup, um, and, you know, Anthony Edwards, kind of the centerpiece of that, Naz Reed, certainly a big piece of it as well, stepping in, filling in for, uh, you know, for both of those uh, both of those excellent players, but I want to talk about Edwards in particular because, we, we, a lot of times this season so far, we've talked about, you know, is Anthony Edwards playing with joy? Is he playing with a love of the game? And it, it's emerged in stretches this year, and it seems to emerge the most when he is the center of attention, when he is the one who is being, you know, when, when it is his show to run. Um, I think you saw that a little bit earlier in the year with with kind of the way they were playing and you're definitely seeing it now with Towns and Gobert out and that was a big question I had coming into the season like could could Anthony Edwards you know still a very young player just in his third year just 21 years old could he share the spotlight could he adapt to another co-starring player in Rudy Gobert coming in here could he find his place and still feel like he was the alpha on this team and I think in the early part of the season, the answer to that question was no. I think we were seeing some real, um, you know, not not pouting so much, but I think he was having a hard time figuring out where he fit in on this team, trying to make sure everybody gets their shots, trying to make sure that uh, you know that everybody is happy, trying to trying to fit in, try to blend in to a degree. Whereas last year, you know, even with Towns and Russell, there was kind of a defined pecking order taking shape, especially in the playoffs where Ant was really starting to emerge, taking that national spotlight. So a point of maturity for Edwards right now is that he's played excellently in these, you know, three out of the last, you know, three games and four nights, um, including back-to-backs. Those are those have been challenging for him in the past, but he was great in the win, um, in the win last night against Dallas, 116-106, came up one assist shy of a triple-double, just put up monster numbers again one night after you know, uh, another big night from him. So 
you know, that is a good sign of maturity that he is, you know, becoming comfortable enough that he can kind of recognize where he needs to take a step in terms of, you know, recognizing that his body is is going to need rest, is going to need kind of the the build up to to play back to back nights, and that he needs to deliver on that second game, even if he's not maybe at his physical one hundred percent. The mental challenge for him right now is when Gobert and Towns come back, can he maintain this energy? Can he still feel like he is, you know, number one in on this team? Because I think this is by and large his team. This is this is his team. This, the team feeds off of his personality. The team, if they're going to go anywhere in the future, he's going to have to be their best player, and I've maintained that since last year. But can he do that once Gobert and Towns are healthy? I imagine Gobert's return will be first. Towns still several weeks away with that calf strain, so we'll see how long it takes him to come back. But interesting that the Wolves are playing very well. Interesting that the joy is there for Edwards right now. Naz Reed gave voice to that after uh, after Monday night's game. I think this is the most happy I've seen him like you know in a while, and I think that's where it starts. You know, when when you when you're when you're at your your, your best, um, I feel like you just you know you, you bring that energy and you know that excitement. I think it just domino effects and everybody trick it tricks down to the next person to the next person, and now everybody's excited for the next person. Like I said before, it's just a domino effect and just. And, you know, with a person like him, it's real effective. We really feel that energy. So it's not just us seeing it. It's his teammates seeing it. It's it's obvious to see that he is very happy right now. Can that happiness still be there when some of these co-starring players return? That will be an important piece because if you get Ant happy and playing at this level and you get Cat back and you get Gobert back, I don't care what anybody says, you still want those guys back. They're still important, at least for this season. That is the key to the rest of the year, and I will be very curious to see how that dynamic is once everybody is back and fully healthy. Take a playcation to Mystic Lake. With 24-7 gaming, the good times never have to end. And you can satisfy your cravings at our restaurants and bars. Or relax in one of our luxurious hotel rooms. Those that play together, stay together. And don't forget to join Club M so you can spark new memories and bask in the rewards along the way. Follow the lights to Mystic Lake, where every day is play day. Andrew Kramer, please, can you help explain what happened on Saturday? Because I'm still a few days later unclear at exactly what I watched. Um, You were there at... U.S. Bank Stadium. We're gonna we're gonna break this down from a film standpoint uh, in a minute here. But what was it like for you to be there to see everything that happened on Saturday? When that second half started, I looked at the stands and turned to our colleague Ben Gessling and said, "I can't believe how many people are still here." Yeah. I was actually shocked at the amount of people that did not abort to go enjoy their Saturday, do anything else other than take in a thirty-three to nothing deficit that started with a third quarter punt yes. from the Vikings offense as Patrick Peterson retold after the game. He said, we were just willing the offense, just get five touchdowns. We won't allow any points in the second half. And Peterson said, uh, we just needed them to come out with a score. And he goes, and they didn't, <laughs> but <laughs> we needed to keep fighting. And yeah, it was, it was the most Jekyll and Hyde, first half doing everything possible to lose the offense yeah. letting down the special teams letting down a defense that entered 32nd in almost every metric 
Um, and yet the defense, you look up at the scoreboard and see the Colts have 30 points and you've only allowed 140 yards at yeah. one point in that first half. Eric Kendricks said too, after the game, I was doing everything I could just not to look at the scoreboard. Um, just trying to avoid the reality that they were facing and it, it worked. It worked. Yeah, it did. Um, so speaking of that defense, it's what I want to kind of focus on because that's been a big, that was a big discussion point going into the game and then kind of gets lost in the shuffle of the drama and just the craziness of how that game transpired. But um, from, from where you're sitting and from what you've looked at kind of in, in the review of that game, what, what exactly did they do differently and did they do it to a degree that was better results wise than they had been, than they had been in recent weeks? Yeah, absolutely. They obviously came in. We talked about the five straight games of 400 yards allowed and this soft zone coverage and not disguising the coverages and quarterbacks easily deciphering them and just all the holes all over the defense. And here after the game, Jordan Hicks, the veteran 30 year old veteran linebackers is crediting Ed Donatel and saying, we changed a lot of man coverage. He turned to the veterans, found out what we were comfortable running uh, in December in week 15 yeah. They managed to go from a predominantly zone-heavy, one of the most zone-heavy defenses in the NFL, to running a lot of man, uh, blitzing on almost 40% of Matt Ryan's dropbacks, which was a season high, um, doing things that they typically did not do um, before. And those are coaching adjustments. Those are putting these veteran players in some better positions, I think. And then they also adjusted things in the secondary with their coverages where you saw Harrison Smith up at the line of scrimmage. Uh, if he wasn't blitzing, he was covering man-to-man really tightly. Um, he was he was around the action, around the ball, in ways that he hasn't been this season. That meant you had to play single high safety coverage. Well, now you have to do it with Duke Shelley starting for Cam Dantzler on the other side. And they did that by basically telling Patrick Peterson, you are going to always take the short side of the field and then we were always going to put the safety over the wide side of the field based on where the ball is on the hash marks. And we are going to allow you, Patrick Peterson, to play one-on-one, a lot of man that you're comfortable playing that you played before, not necessarily this year, but before. And that's going to allow us to help Duke Shelley with Cam Bynum and put Harrison Smith in the middle of the fray in the action. Those adjustments are all very different things. Typically, it was just two deep safeties, shell yeah. coverages, Um Patrick Peterson might not have always had help, but he was dropping into deep coverages over the, a third of the field or a fourth of the field. Um, we didn't see that this time around. We saw a lot of single high, a lot of blitzing. I don't think they can do this every week, Yeah, but you can at least pepper in some of this stuff now in ways that against inferior offenses like the, the Mac Jones and the Patriots, Mike White and the Jets, that you just didn't see them do before. And and I think it's going to give them at least another kind of tool uh, for them to use moving forward. And based on the the kind of conversation going into the week, we knew there was going to be some changes. Were the was it it seemed more dramatic than maybe what they were initially saying, at least that there's a tweaks, you can't you can't rechange you can't change the scheme wholesale at this point in the year. I mean, it sounds like they kind of did at least at least for this for this one game plan. Yeah, they, they basically instituted a lot more man-to-man stuff. And like I said, some of that stuff was half-field stuff where they would put Patrick Peterson in man but still run their zones over Shelley and the other side. So they just had a good adjustment and a good blend. And that's the kind of nimble adjustments from the coaching staff that you've wanted to see from these Vikings. And it took kind of a boiling point yeah. after yeah. that Lions loss to, to get to it. And so 
I think this is something that you got to look at the coaching staff sideways, like we have all year and say, where's this been? Yeah. Um, but I also don't think, like I said, I don't think it's going to lead to this continued change. I would be shocked if we see them blitz a quarterback 40% again, um, the rest of the season or certainly into the playoffs. So it's going to be something where you just want to see them mix this stuff in and kind of learn how to ride that balance of, you know, we want to play deep. We want to not give up the big plays, but we also kind of got to force the issue sometimes against quarterbacks. Uh, and, and they did on, on Saturday. Yeah. Probably no greater example of a well-timed blitz than the one that got them off the field in overtime when they threw a lot of pressure at Matt Ryan. He's forced to just basically throw it up and get rid of it. And that gets the ball back to them, gets them down the field and uh, gets them the, the winning field goal. Although a, a tie would have done just the same in terms of at least the practical element of, of that game, which was kind of an interesting wrinkle to it too. You kind of had to be, you know, Connell talked about that. You got to be a little bit conservative because you know that, you know, you clinch with the tie. It's not, it would not have been the great dramatic kind of, it would have been an, an unsatisfying ending, but it still would have worked. But and nonetheless, the defense gets them the ball back, gets that stop, make sure they don't lose at least and they end up winning. But that, that felt like one where it was like, I don't know if they would have done that at another point in the season. Just it felt like there was more than five coming in that situation, unless it was just a well, a well-timed one in particular. Yeah, I think it was. That was one where Harrison Smith was the guy blitzing for them, and it set up a one-on-one for Daniel Hunter, and Hunter was the one, arm stretched out, really kind of came through, and I think even hit the ball or hit Ryan's arm as he threw it uh, to lead to that incompletion. Huge moment, huge moment in that game for them. And what stood out to me too was that I, I don't know if they went into this game intending to blitz as often as they did. The first half, there weren't many chances on defense, right? A lot of short fields yeah. and all that. But the first half, they only sent two five-man rushes on 17 passing plays. The second half, it was 12 of 20. Wow. That was basically the only thing they were doing in the second half, or at least predominantly. Um, and then they they kind of found a groove there in the fourth quarter where Donatel just kept sending it. And Jordan Hicks credited Donatel after the game and said, he listens to us. He asks what we think, what we want to hear. Or, you know, he wants to hear what we think in those yeah. moments. And clearly, I'm sure the players were saying, hey, let's just get after it. And and it really worked. Well, I'm sure some of it's ha- that it's working. Some of it's just the urgency of you can't have them having sustained drives with first downs. Like you got to get the ball back. You don't, you don't have to get the you don't just have to get the ball back. You got to get the ball back fast if you're going to make up a 33 point deficit, especially when turnovers weren't really the story until that last you know, the last one where they finally did get the one that, that Sullivan should have had a touchdown on. But it ended up working out for him. He, they at least got the possession on that one. Yeah, that's true. I've never seen a guy as mad as Patrick Peterson was on that play, the second one where Sullivan yeah. uh, got the touchdown, ruled down, and they, they at least got the ball back there. But you're right. In in that second half, they needed to make some game-changing right. plays. And uh, players talked about, in, after, in the locker room, they talked about guys willing each other to attack the football, trying to force that turnover. And um, they didn't really get it, but they got so many stops in that second half, thanks in part to those second, third down blitzes. I want to get to Dalvin Cook in a minute too, but what what's the risk reward then of you know doing that switching to that kind of scheme at least sprinkling it in more against a better team like so we're talking about you know even Green Bay in a couple of weeks the Giants are a good team they're maybe not an explosive offense or dynamic offense but you know a team that can hurt you a little bit more than um, a little bit more than the Colts could. Well, I think one thing even if it isn't against a, a premier quarterback. 
when you face um, in the first round, if you're going to face Jared Goff again, if you're going to face Geno Smith, um, those are some more downfield attacks, but you still need to be able to tackle better and align better than they had been doing. There were some fundamental basic things that they were not doing well on defense that they actually did do well, especially in the second half against the Colts. Um, there was one third down in that second half where Matt Ryan read the blitz. It was like a zero blitz look, super aggressive from the Vikings, third and seven. Harrison Smith comes off the edge. Brian Osamoa comes off the edge. It's a total overload blitz. Matt Ryan reads it, throws it out to the screen to Pittman. It's a third and seven. He's got the numbers. He's got the blocker. The only guy to stop the play is Cam Bynum way deep doing that single high stuff I was talking about over Duke Shelley's side, which is the opposite side of the field. Somehow Cam Bynum reads that play and comes all the way down and tackles Michael Pittman for a gain of just zero forces. I think it was, I think he forced that final field goal from 50 plus yards on that play. But if the Colts find a way to grind that out and get a touchdown, that that is what makes that lead insurmountable at that point. And those are the kind of plays you have to make open field tackles. You have to read, react, play downhill. We saw them miss so many tackles against the Jets. We saw them miss tackles. Um, I'm thinking back to the Cowboys game. Uh, the Patriots game was just busted coverages. But th- there's just different things in the secondary that were issues. And if they can do that fundamentally like they did on Saturday, and then you can do that with some of the softer, deeper stuff that you have to play against an Aaron Rodgers, um, you might have to play against, I don't know, a Jalen Hurts, A.J. Brown, some kind of combo you might face down the road. Yeah. Um, that kind of basic stuff they need to get better at. And that's that's bigger than an Ed Donatel thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> final thought for you, switching to offense for a little bit. Dalvin Cook had 95 yards rushing, 95 yards receiving, including you know, taking the what amounted to a kind of a wide receiver screen, uh, 64 yards for that, what ended up being the game-tying touchdown, just getting him into space in different ways on on that play. And, you know, we've seen their screen game kind of go nowhere. That was a little unconventional in terms of a, a running back screen. But um, what did you see in terms of how they were able to get him going, especially, you know, when you're down that big, you don't imagine that there's going to be much left for the running game, but they didn't completely abandon it and still got the ball in the hands of one of their better playmakers. Yeah, I like what they did um, on offense when it came to that because Kevin O'Connell clearly knew they were outmatched up front. You didn't have your starting center in Garrett Bradbury. The Colts' strength is their defensive line, especially DeForest Buckner, who just destroys the Vikings every time he plays them. He's got, I think, six and a half sacks in four games across two teams. More like destroy us, Buckner, am I right? (laughs) And so Kevin O'Connell said, look, we're just going to pitch it left. We're going to screen right. We are just going to get on the perimeter against old friend Yannick Ngakwe, who, as we know, is not a great run defender. No. Likes to get after the quarterback, uh, but not a great run defender. And so they took advantage of his aggressiveness in those moments. And I think part of that success was matchup-based. Darius Leonard, now Shaquille Leonard for the Colts, he's their all-pro linebacker. Uh, He's out. He's on injured reserve. Um, They're playing some backups there at linebacker. They couldn't really chase Dalvin that much. And you got Christian Derisaw back, which was huge because when you have Derisaw, they did some stuff that 40 yard run before the fumble, mm-hmm. they pull Derisaw around the end and then they pin the defensive end with KJ Osborne. You don't run that play. And they didn't run that play with Blake Brandle as your left tackle. Okay. You don't want to send Blake Brandle out in space to try to chase down. I think it was Stefan Gilmore that, that Christian Derisaw just leveled uh, for Dalvin cook. So you've got your, 
um, what you assume to be your Pro Bowl left tackle back right there. He's a road grader. He allows you to do that stuff on the edges. And in the screen game, to me, you were just taking advantage of a really aggressive pass rush and some pretty bad linebackers in Indianapolis. So you want to build off of that, sure, and you hope they can do better than they have in the past in in that screen game. But I don't think we're going to see these 60-yard pops uh, every week. No, I would think not, but it is uh, some interesting stuff, interesting wrinkles they were able to do in this game offensively and defensively that we'll see, like you said, if they're able to incorporate down uh, down the stretch here in the last uh, three regular season games and then, of course, the uh, at least one home postseason game as well. First NFC North title in five years. Giants next week, Packers after that, Bears to finish it, then the playoffs. Um, we won't do one of these next week because I'm taking the week off, but uh, we'll be back at this, right, Andrew, uh, after the Packers game in uh, early January. Looking forward to it. I always enjoy talking to Andrew. He always has great perspectives, always breaks down the film really well, and it was really interesting to watch and hear him talk about just how much changed for the Vikings. And I think the, the most fascinating question is how much of that can they carry forward? How much of that is just a function of playing a team like the Colts that, you know, has in the mobile quarterback has some some offensive challenges. And, you know, even even with, you know, some of the some of what was thrown their way, you know, the Colts still move the ball in a lot of cases. So I don't think this is a defense that has solved a whole lot, but they have at least added some new tools to be able to stop teams. It'll be interesting to see how they deploy those tools going forward. It's Vikings Poetry Time with Keith Rashad. Um Keith, if any game was begging for the artistry of artistic expression through poetry it was uh that game on saturday where the vikings like i've talked about with andrew already um blew a 33 not not blue they they gave indianapolis a 33 point head start and then survived to um win uh in overtime after the largest comeback in nfl history i i only hope i I agree i agree that that game was so boring that it needed some poetry to spice it up. Exactly. You got to, you got to, if anything, we need the, the drama that poetry can add to a game. So please, sir, Vaiku number one. The stupid Vikings. I used to turn off blowouts. Now, never again. Well, I learned a lesson. I took the kids somewhere at halftime and ended up like scrambling to watch the rest of the game on like a, small tv at a aquatic pet store and uh and on my phone because i thought that was i thought that the base even even this team with all the comebacks they've had could not with the way they were playing and with the deficit so large come back from 33 nothing and i was wrong well i think i might have had the absolute best situation you could have under the circumstances okay because i Brought my son to a, one of his hockey jamborees. Okay. And the end of the jamboree overlapped with the start of the Vikings game. Right. Okay. And so my plan was you know, it, it, the jamboree was about an hour and a half away from our house. Right. Because you mm-hmm. have to drive that far to get to hockey in North Carolina. Yes. Ugh. Anyway. So we went to the jamboree. We had fun. Um, and then after the jamboree, we uh, went to a restaurant. And my intention was you go home, you just watch the game, no big yep. deal, right? Yep. But I'm yep. sitting at that restaurant and I overheard somebody say, uh, the Colts are beating the Vikings 33 to nothing at halftime. Uh-huh. 
right? And so, you know, there's the whole sort of spoiler, you know, thing yeah. going on. It's like, so then, of course, I had to check my phone because I wanted to make sure that they said the Colts were winning and not the Vikings and what have it. So I saw it was 33-0 at halftime. And then we jumped in the car, mm-hmm. right? And it's an hour and a half long car ride. He's yep. going to fall asleep in 10 minutes because he's been skating for three hours. Right. Right. I got nothing better to do than to just sit and listen to the game on the stupid radio. Yeah. Right. So who cares? Let's let's hear what these radio folks have to say about how terrible this team is. Right. But then I'm sitting there listening to the game with nothing better to do because I'm mm-hmm. a captive audience. And all of a sudden this one touchdown. Yeah. And all of a sudden it's another <laughs> touchdown. Mm-hmm. Also, there's three touchdowns. Now they're talking about possible yep. comeback. And, right. And then we had to drop off some equipment at the arena before we went back home. And we got to the arena right as overtime started. And we rushed in and dropped the equipment off and then got to the back into the car and then drove home, which was just enough time. We heard about two minutes before we got into the driveway, the, the field goal kick. Wow. And they won it. <laughs> Yes, they did. And so I didn't have to go through any of the misery. No, you didn't. I got through the the joy and the happiness part of the game during a period of time when that was going to be dead time anyway. Yeah, that's perfect. And it was. I, I enjoy listening to games on the radio, by the way, still. Um, I think it's, there's a certain element of drama when you can't see it, when someone has to describe it to you that uh, that that is uh, that, that's even more dramatic than watching it on the television the oh the, the newspaper man <laughs> likes the old media that's I do, a real shock right? yeah real I, shock. I, I like it actually better if someone how, chisels... is, how is life back in 1937 <laughs> i prefer it actually if someone chisels the results on a stone tablet and, and sends it to me on the back of a pigeon my my preferred a very method... strong pigeon at that <laughs> yes very strong pigeon. i prefer it if it's rolled up in papyrus yes right and and sent down the river so yes. I can catch it three weeks later and read yes. it off of there. That's the best yeah. way to learn about a game. I prefer if someone does crude drawings on a cave wall and then I have to interpret what happened. That's how I like to get my Vikings news. <laughs> Fair enough. So anyway, Vaiku 2. A historic win and a division title, yet no confidence. Yeah, I, I mean, that's that's kind of the thing, right? Like, how does this leave you feeling... I mean, exhilaration of from the fans, from the players of having completed a comeback like that and the relief of winning the game and winning the division. But then also, you know, like you expressed so so briefly and beautifully in 17 total syllables, um, the abject disgust at how they got to that point in the game to be losing 33 nothing to a bad team at home with everything on the line is disturbing um and, and I don't know if I don't know if I don't know if their woes I think we I think we've got enough of a sample size to know what they are what's good and what just isn't correctable at this point in the season well a, a friend of mine uh, yes listeners I have more than one friend not just mm-hmm. one media <laughs> mogul in the twin cities media mogul love it <laughs> Uh, and a friend of mine texted me and said, I, I don't know, man. I-, I think I might be starting to believe these Vikings. Oh. They might be a little different. So I sent him three quick points. One was just enjoy it while it lasts because these are the Vikings yes. we're talking about. Yes. Two was the Colts are terrible and they mm-hmm. are not going to be able to get away with this in the playoffs when they're playing real teams. 
And the third was, oh my God, that was amazing. I love this team. It's unbelievable. Right. It's like, it's all those things. And you can, you can be skeptical and still enjoy it, I think, because even, even if you're, even as you're pointing out the flaws in this team, you have to marvel at the way they've won all of these games, what 10 and 0 now in one score games. And, you know, they're 11 and three. Uh, it's, it's taken uh, the, the fortune and, you know, making the right plays at the right time. But you got, if you, if you're a Vikings fan, you got to enjoy this. Cause this is, a season unlike any other that I can ever, ever uh, even have fathomed cooking up in my imagination. Well, this season is perhaps even more enjoyable than most in the sense that it's uncoupled with any expectations, right? Yeah. I still do not believe that they are going to succeed in the playoffs. No. Right. So the fact <laughs> that they keep winning and doing these crazy things is fun, right? It's yes. unlike some of these other teams in the past where there have been expectations and and you live and die with every play. Like I don't I don't think they're going to win anything. I think no. they'll maybe win one game in the playoffs and and fine, good, great, whatever. I didn't have any expectations of the playoffs in the first place. No. So then if you divorce any actual expectations from the results that you're getting this season, this has actually been maybe next to next to the 15 and one season until uh-huh. it ended the most fun season I can remember as a Vikings fan, because it's all gravy, right? Yeah. It's all the cherry on the top. Well, yeah. I mean, think about the last two, even three of the last four NFC title games they've been in 2017, the burden of Super Bowls at us bank stadium. So that was kind of the storyline as they, you know, made had an unexpected 13 and 3 season but that still was you know that that burden was there 2009 it was the all in Brett Favre year that year was enjoyable but also carried the expectation that could this be the year you know 2000 I don't think I had <clears throat> massive expectations for the Dante Culpepper year but still when they got to the NFC title game and they were favored in New York you allowed yourself to believe that this could be a year they could get to the Super Bowl and they were only 41 points short and um, 98, like you said, couldn't like that, quite make that comeback. No, they couldn't. Um, and I believe that was 34 nothing at halftime. So I believe that was the largest deficit they've ever faced in uh, in any any halftime of any game. I could be wrong. Didn't but, didn't, uh, quite, didn't quite put up the same fight as they did this last. No, they year. did not. No, they definitely did not. Um, and 98, you know, when they were 15 to one, and just everything seemed like it was going right that season too. Felt like a, a season of destiny. This this season just feels like a season of whimsy. And even if even if and when they lose in the postseason, I still think people can be happy about this year because it was so unexpected. And so there were so many moments along the way. Whimsy is a very good word. It is a good word. Okay, Vaiku 3, please. I didn't get it. Why'd the Eagles cut Rager? It makes more sense now. Yeah, I can always take down that blog post I wrote a couple of weeks ago about why don't they use Jalen Rager more often. Now in, you know. uh, in the past game, I can take now, it. Back. Now they now it's been answered. It's been now answered because he uh, he's not uh, in certain situations. I still think he could be effective, but not as a primary receiver. It does also show that uh, Jeff Jefferson was not on the field for either one of those plays. You take Justin Jefferson out of the equation, and this offense is not good. And yeah, you you replace Justin Jefferson with Jalen Rager, and and that's what you get. Yes, with with off brand twenty twenty draft pick. Um, 2020 first round pick it's uh it's not the same experience but man jefferson too is uh is amazing he did it again in this game and uh yeah rager i mean 
He's got some skills, I think, but I think the way you got to use him is get him open in space, not uh, you know, not as a uh, possession receiver and not as this. But yeah, that was not great. I'll 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 go on with that. Yeah, he obviously has a certain level of talent and and can play in the NFL, but the expectations for him need to be maybe tempered a little bit and yes. you recognize what you're what you're working with there. Yes. And, and it also goes to speak to the myriad of ways that this team messed up and yeah. tried to give the way oh, game yeah. away and just looked awful. Well, the, it, first, the first half was just like an exercise in everything you can do wrong. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. Um and Jalen Rager was part of it. He, was part he of basically it. led he to did. those two interceptions. It was yes, his, his fault. Yes, he did. Okay, last one, please. All right. Life is sorrowful. Pain is the only constant. The refs. <laughs> Do I have to? I had to use the beep button for the first time in a while, but that's okay. Yeah. Or did you mean it in the sense of footballs? Uh, well, let's say that. Yes. I mean, yeah. in the sense of footballs. Yeah. Well, it did not aid in their comeback that they had two potential fumble returns for touchdowns blown dead by bad officiating. It did not help, especially the second one. The second, the first one, maybe I could buy that his forward progress has stopped. Although when he was supposed to decide when a guy is still fighting for yards, the second one, the ball is clearly out. It was out forever. How do you blow that one dead? Can you imagine what the discourse would be like if they had lost that game? Yes, I can. Ima- I yes, I can imagine because that's the last forty <laughs> years of Vikings history. <laughs> yeah, it. Um, wow, just just imagining the what? Oh boy, the stories about the refs and what have you. Yes, and you know what? There. This is a game officiated by human beings. They are human beings. Mistakes are part of the the totality of what happens, but. Boy, that was just bad. Yeah, it was very bad. It was in a, the second one, just like, I don't know, seeing the replays, like, I just feel like in a situation like that, wow, you got to err on the side of the thing you can review and take the other way, right? Like, if you blow the play dead, you there's no going back on that. You can get possession like they did, but you can't get the return. If if you let the play go and let the guy do the return, and then it's then it turns out it wasn't really a fumble. You can fix that. You can't fix the other thing. So why not err on the side of of the other other thing that's correctable? Well, obviously because Roger Goodell hates the Vikings and there's a conspiracy against this team and has been for a very long time. Yeah, except uh, this year maybe uh, everything's uh, turning around. We'll see. Let's finish with the cooler. Gophers football team getting an influx of talent at wide receiver right before signing day on Wednesday. On Monday, finding out that uh, they've got two verbal commitments that flipped from Power 5 programs. Ken Kenrick Lanier, who was a Vanderbilt commit, uh, flipped to the Gophers, and TJ McWilliams, who was originally a Purdue recruit. Both of those wide receivers uh, expected to sign now with the Gophers on Wednesday. Um, and they also they also got a transfer uh, in the transfer portal, Elijah Spencer uh, from Charlotte, um, the other day, he was a you know led led Charlotte with almost a thousand yards and nine touchdowns in 2022. So a lot of uh, a lot of beefing up of the wide receiver room as we get to, as we get towards signing day. And I'm expecting to have Randy Johnson, Gopher Football beat writer, on Thursday's show to further dissect 
not only their incoming recruiting class, but the idea that now the transfer portal is just as important, if not more more important, in determining how a team is going to fare in the future. That will do it for me today. Should have a really good one coming up tomorrow. Expecting to have Paul Allen from KFan on with me to talk about calling these crazy Vikings games this season, his style, and just how he finds the time to do everything he does. So expecting to talk to him and uh, bring you that on Wednesday. Thank you so much for listening. Back at it again tomorrow.